song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains, some would say a prestigious episode, Dave, and others would say an essential one. Yeah, I would say it's a uh, it's definitely an episode and it, it's definitely going to span several continents. We are revisiting the essential viewings of the history of the IC title. We kind of had a cheat sheet, which is the... Intercontinental history of the Intercontinental Championship DVD, which we borrowed a decent amount of matches from, right, Dave? I think we can come out and say it. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I bought that thing like right when it came out at kind of the height of, of wrestling DVDs, and I think that's I always think that that's up there in one of the best things that the WWE put out, and it's it's really really still widely available out there in circulation. So we thought that it would be kind of a cool anchor piece for the EV. Uh, both because it simplified things for us, uh, but also it, it kind of makes it easier for you, the listener, if you really kind of want to follow along with us and and break down the same match as we did. If you can just get your hand on that DVD, it's actually really, really easy. Because I know that navigating the WWE network on a lot of devices other than a PC like really isn't as easy as it should be. And so we want we want to make the essential viewing experience really fun for you. And I think grounding it in this DVD set. Uh, is going to help us do that. Yeah, and this is a pre, obviously, um, I, or at least I'm pretty sure it's a pre-network DVD set. So you got to see stuff that you really wouldn't be able to get otherwise because it's from random MSG shows. It's from Summer Slams, which were already av- available, but like you had to pay $200 to get them. It, it came with a cooler, Nick. It came with a cooler. <laughs> I say that as somebody who got the WrestleMania anthology and still have the piece of the mat. So, like, I'm not against buying big DVD sets like that, but this DVD set in particular, I think, really opened my eyes. This and the history of the world champion, the WWE Championship, are the two, like, best, in my opinion. And I think that you really get to see, the not the smaller matches, but matches that... Are, are relatively obscure. Like, I mean, there's obviously, like, we're going to start off with a Pat Patterson Ted DiBiase match, but there's also a Pedro Morales Don Morocco match that we're going to talk about that's right after, and it's pretty obscure. Like, you can find it on YouTube, but like, or maybe I shouldn't say that because it'll get taken down, but there are these hidden gems, I guess you would call it. Is that, That's what they would call it in the network now. So it's, it's a really, it's really worth it. We're not getting paid to say that. It's just like both of us got it at the same time and both really enjoyed it. So yeah, uh, we're, like I said, we're going to start with Pat Patterson and Ted DiBiase. It's so weird to see young Ted DiBiase without, not just the Million Dollar Man gimmick, but just looking almost completely differently while still being absolutely recognizable as Ted DiBiase. Oh yeah, definitely. I don't think that Ted DiBiase looks like anybody else and anybody else looks like Ted DiBiase. Maybe Terry Taylor a little bit. Quagmire. No, <laughs> no you, can, you can see him from a mile away, definitely, even with his, his little bowl cut in this match and his little, whatever they are, gold or brown tights, mustard colored, not, not the world's best look. But, but no, I mean, here is your late 1970s baby face. I couldn't think of a greater example. Pat Patterson, who's obviously in the match, is such a great chicken shit heel. And we kind of touched on it last episode. He's so good at that Sabisco style of powder, taking off the jacket powder. Like, he he exists in a powder room. That, that's what I like. Like, the outside of the ring is the powder room to him. He's just hanging out there until he absolutely has to go in there and fight. And this is something that's going to be a theme throughout these matches. That is one of the main ways they tell intercontinental stories. This is like an er, almost like an origin story of the style of match you're most likely to see, not just in this collection of matches we're talking about, but in general, the IC belt 
for reasons we talked about, is a is a way to have baby faces and heels work like baby faces and heels used to. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think a common thread through all these matches is that anytime there's action going on, uh, that that means the baby faces on top pretty much. That like the only way the the heel can can get offenses by blatantly cheating or by taking advantage of the referee in some other way or by a distraction from a manager or something like that. That Yeah, definitely the through line in a lot of these intercontinental title matches is that all things being equal, the baby face would, would always win. Like it's so clear in this Patterson-DiBiase match, just looking at them, like Ted DiBiase looks like this raw-boned kid who doesn't even know how strong he is yet. And Patterson, even though he's not 40 yet here, looks like an older guy. You can just see it on him. And even he has this big poofy sleeved ring jacket. And like, it looks kind of dated compared to the pared down stuff that DiBiase is 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 wearing just his little trunks. Like I was saying, like, it's a, a very visual and very clear and very pro wrestling story. I mean, like you said, Patterson, first he won't take the belt off till DiBiase backs away so that he can hold the belt up in the middle of the ring. And then he won't take his jacket off. Like he stalls for five or seven minutes before they touch. And then, you know, DiBiase is pulling him around the ring by his ring jacket for the first five minutes of the match. It's like all about, you know, the, this, this young, exciting up and comer and this guy who's on the downhill slope, but for whatever reason is higher up on the totem pole. It's really simple, but it's really masterfully done. It's always surprising to me when you see a guy for instance if you were to watch w old old wwf and see sterling golden uh or in this case seeing dibiase pre million dollar man is such a a mind fuck because he's so iconic as this character as that character but it's still the same person in other words they're not like hiding that it's ted dibiase obviously they didn't know they're going to be doing the million dollar man gimmick but it reminds me almost of seeing like bradshaw from uh before he became jbl yeah that's a that's definitely a, a good comparison or seeing matt Bourne at wrestlemania one and being like wait that's doink what he was there at wrestlemania one <laughs> no definitely but but like you said like the shape of the face he's He's so recognizable and it really speaks to how Vince McMahon changed the wrestling business between 1979 and 1989 that a guy who, like I said, is a great 70s baby face, which basically means he's just kind of flat and young and likable and like aspirational to other young athletes. And then 10 years later, this guy is the most fully flared character gimmick out to date you know what i mean it's interesting it shows you how much vince mcmahon changed the the wrestling business between 79 and 89 yeah and guys like dibiase had legacies that existed outside of the wwf oh yeah his dad was his dad was iron mike dibiase who'd been a big wrestler who famously died in the ring but yeah yeah yeah. he, he or i think iron mike dibiase was technically his stepfather but certainly the, the dude who raised him and whose name he used but yeah yeah he came from wrestling and certainly had a legacy and was a, a, a big star and especially like in Mid-South and stuff in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, and you can see the ways in which he goes from, uh, like th- at this time, a guy that came from Mid-South, a, ter- a very territorial wrestler to, like you said, this transition to the heel for a couple of years. And I think what's also interesting is that Pat Patterson 
plays his character in such a way that I don't think it gets him over, but he doesn't, I mean, I could be wrong about that, but it doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to care. He's just about making Ted DiBiase look good almost, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I was saying, like anytime there's wrestling happening in this match, you know, it's, it's, it's DiBiase on top and Patterson looks terrified. Like he literally flails his arms around. Like he's doing like a physical comedy bit. Like he's a cartoon character, kind of like some of what we talked about, like uh, with Bobby Heenan in our previous episode, but no, he's just over the top theatrical. Anytime there's wrestling going on, he's scared for his life. And the only time he's confident is like when he gets an eye rate at the end, he beats Ted DiBiase with his with his feet on the ropes because he he pulls out a pair of uh, brass knuckles and then DiBiase gets the brass knuckles and then the referee goes in to stop DiBiase from punching him with the brass knuckles and he rolls him up and puts his feet on the ropes and beats him like it's the most dastardly underhanded he like Patterson does not to my memory apply any wrestling hold or maneuvers in this match it's just rakes to the face and thumbs to the eyes and just like little and of course his great punches at times and stuff but like but it's just little stuff he's he's completely telling the story that DiBiase is the superior athlete DiBiase is the quote-unquote real wrestler and he's he's you know this this guy who's just hanging on by a thread no it's a it's a tremendously unselfish performance while still playing one's own character to the hilt. You know what I mean? Not sacrificing anything of oneself, but still giving everything to the other person. Yeah. It's a a thing that I don't want to say is missing, but went away for a little while. This idea of when you had the cool heel that Pat Patterson isn't cool at all. I don't think he ever has been. And he didn't try to be at any point. And it's nice to see there are role. There are, places for the ass kicker heel but it doesn't have to be in every not every heel has to be an ass kicker heel i know we make fun of baron corbin because nobody likes millhouse but he eats a lot of shit and it's nice to see someone so willing to just 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 eat that much shit they just exist on some level to make other people look good even if it's some even if they're going to end up winning the match yeah definitely i mean he is he is there as basically i mean it's it's a little thinner now than it was maybe a couple of months ago but he's there essentially as a proxy for stephanie mcmahon and is maybe the most accomplished on a certain level one of the most effective uh authority figures in the history of raw at actually giving people wins that stick over the authority figures. <laughs> you know, I, I think that for, for all of his weaknesses and the fact that, like, do I think he's the greatest uh, retirement match opponent for Kurt Angle ever? Like, no. But I think there's something that works and something that's very true to wrestling about him being the proxy for Stephanie McMahon, who, who gets his ass kicked and who, you know, talks a big game, but is never actually able to back it up unless he's got his two more jacked buddies with yeah, him. Yeah, it's a very nice thing to get to see in professional wrestling is someone who exists in large part to put people over without, like you said, and I think that's the key component. Baron Corbin doesn't lose himself when he wrestles and gets his ass kicked. He's still 
Baron Corbin. And, and that's something that you see with Pat Patterson. It's also something you see in the next match we're going to talk about, which is Pedro Morales versus Don Morocco from at MSG from December 28th, 1982. Don Morocco, and I, I mentioned this in passing last episode, Don Morocco as a heel is, is it warms the cockles and the subcockles of my heart. That that match in particular, out of all of these, out of the ones, like, it's not the best match by any stretch of the imagination, but Don Morocco continues to light my heart up every time I watch him. Oh, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to read from the notes, as is my want. These are my two top bullet points under this match. Number one, just a heated brawl between two hosses, H-O-S-S-E-S. Uh, that's point number one. Point number two. Obviously, this is why Vince McMahon thinks gigantic men brawling while they gasp for air is a satisfying main event. Like, this is a great match. This is just two gigundo, like, 300-pound, the size of construction equipment-looking motherfuckers just brawling all around the ring and beating the crap out of each other. And they look, they're gasping for breath, and they look like they hate each other. Like, it's, it's not a beautiful wrestling match but as you were kind of saying earlier, it's a it's a window into a part of wrestling that, for for advertising and insurance purposes, has kind of gone away. Morocco's special gift is being almost unassuming, despite his size. Unassuming is not the right word. He's able to do things that any old heel would be able to do. And it seems so much worse because he, and this is something you definitely brought up. He's just a dick. Like he could beat you, but he's just a dick and doesn't want to try hard enough to do so. And there's this amazing moment in the match where he, I mean, destroys Pedro Morales' dick. Like just the swiftest back kick I have ever seen. And Vince McMahon's like, oh, well, I mean, and you're like, no, dude, he just hit him square in the, 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 the danglies like he has this moment where it's like this you think it's this big lumbering guy and then you see him do stuff and you're like oh you're kind of like you're nimble and you have this athleticism that's kind of you don't look like a big oaf kicking a dude in the nuts you look like a guy who you look the same way that like rick flair looks when he you know what i'm saying like not that he's rick flair but that there's this kind of inside of him there's a much smaller more agile wrestler and he carries it well i i like I said yesterday, I love Don Morocco, and this match is like a great. You go out of your way to watch this match because he's fan. Pedro Morales is great. He's super over. He's super hot baby face. He's tough as nails. I totally get it with him that he was such a hot baby face that they were afraid there were going to be riots. Uh, racism also was the other reason for that. But Don Morocco and him, like you said, it's just I get it in the same way that watch. And my favorite match of all time is. British Bulldog versus Warlord at WrestleMania 7. That's what this match kind of reminds me of. It's a great story told by two guys that in the the work rate era would be seen as on the face as guys that don't have any business in the wrestling business, especially the modern wrestling business. But both of these guys, and to me in particular, Don Morocco, he reminds me of Batista. Another guy I mentioned is Scott Hall. You said earlier he's got that, like, too cool to try hard aspect to his character. And I think that, like, that's something from Scott Hall that I think that that, that's, 
that I think maybe that came from Morocco. Like maybe Morocco was someone that Hall was studying and, and it, along with Gino Hernandez and, and Kurt Hennig and those guys. But I think uh, I think another guy who Morocco really reminded me of Scott Hall in this match. And it's so funny because they call him The Rock. They occasionally call him The Rock Don Morocco. And you're like, he's not The Rock. And you hear him cut promos and you're like, Oh wow! Like you could you could have been a huge fucking star if they didn't have like Hogan. Not that Hogan's there, at the, but like you can see why he was such a big star at the time. It makes total sense in a way that again these feel like guys on the surface that you're just gonna be like, ah, oh, this is dog shit. This is just a bunch of two this two fat guys, and it's like no, these guys can really go. The crowd's super hot. They beat the shit out of each other. It looks quote unquote real. There's verisimilitude to it. It just it's a match that, and we've talked about this before. It kind of reminds me in the same way of like the BWO FBI match, where it's a match that perfectly does what it's trying to do, and in that way, it is a great match. Oh yeah, I I, I love this finish. Yeah. This is like a bad finish done amazing. Yeah. It's so, so they're fired up in the corner and the ref comes in. Uh, Pedro's got, uh, Pedro's got Morocco in the corner and Pedro's firing on him. And the ref is coming in to tell him to break because they're in the corner and he inadvertently hits the ref. And then the ref stands up and admonishes him for, for making contact with him. Morocco immediately turns to the ref and glares at him like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And then he kicks the ref as hard <laughs> as he can in the stomach. And the ref flies off screen and takes this huge bump. And then the ref calls for the DQ. Yeah, he like slowly gets up and is just like, fuck you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible finish of just the like... Yeah, they both hit the ref, but there's the difference between the fired up, the fury, and then just the weasel well, like, well, you should have given me a disqualification. I should have retained the title. <laughs> and he goes to, and Morales goes back in the ring, and it's like, come at me, motherfucker. And Morocco, like, feigns and does the, the, the wonderful heel thing of just like, nah, fuck you. <laughs> like, I'm out. Peace. That's all for today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... I this is uh, this, and we're gonna get to a match later. Or I specifically requested be put in this. This is probably my favorite match out of the ones we covered. All of the other ones are really great, but this one is just so much fun, and it's such a great Haas fight. I I I can't recommend going out of your way to watch this enough. It's such a good pre Hulk Hogan version of the WWF. Yeah, and I think when you were heaping praise on the Intercontinental Championship DVD set, uh, I think this is one of the reasons why that this is when some of the people in production. Like I, I know Finkel had a lot of swing when they were first making these uh, <laughs> these DVDs, but but there was an older set in production who had a different set of goals with the home video releases, and like this this match wouldn't be on this if it came out now. It would be buried super deep on the network under you know some uh, vault hidden classics, dusty gems, whatever. But like it's one of the things that's really great about this DVD set is that this the two matches that we've talked about so far are actually on there. It's it's just so valuable to have that late 70s early 80s stuff for context just to see like how how good the WWF was in its way. It was different from most other territories in important ways, but it was it was very very good, but it it's also like I said nice to to see that context for the title, for the Intercontinental title, to see a match like this where like there's a point, I think it's maybe after the DQ happens where like at one point Morocco had, or sorry, uh, Pedro has Morocco and he's just biting at his face. Like, it's just like this incredible old school, super personal feeling match that like, I'm just so glad that it's on that DVD set. 
Another very personal match uh, we're going to talk about next. Uh, we wanted to mention now, before we get into the heat of things, uh, we did talk about Savage and Steamboat last episode. We're not going to get into the those matches, the Brett Perfect, Sean Razor ladder match kind of stuff, because A, we want to talk about it more in depth and give it really the shine it deserves, but also... Every single person that's going to talk about the history of the Intercontinental title is going to talk about those matches. And I, I think if you know, you know, and if you don't, we'll eventually explain it to you. Yeah, that sounds fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and so we're going to go straight to, and this is something that uh, we talked about, the Rude Warrior Rude exchange, because they essentially need to give Warrior the title back so that he can cash it in for the championship match at WrestleMania 6. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's next. Yeah. And... So that it's kind of like, all right, well, we can put the belt back on him. And I had told Dave that I had a super hot take regarding this match. And it's this. Warrior is the patient zero of the modern WWE main event. And this match is maybe like... I think even more so than the Hogan match, this match and this kind of match and this feud in particular is that style of false finishes and just constant like exaggeration of bigger and bigger spots and stuff like that. It's also the idea that baby faces don't have to be baby faces in matches. There's so much in this match. And I think it's because you have Hogan, who's a very specific kind of performer that can only do certain things and say what you will about warrior, but like, he went to the top rope in this match, and of course he doesn't go off the top rope, but Hogan would have literally never done that in the WWF. And it's this, you can really feel this evolution from this conquering hero kind of story that they're telling with Hogan, where it's all about how he's going to flip the tide at the end, where this match feels like, yeah, he flips the tide at the end, but it feels like there's much more of an actual story from move to move to move. And you may disagree, but having watched this match, it's what I thought is like, oh, this and the Savage match from WrestleMania 7 and a couple of others. Warrior was so good at being led to a great match that he really lent himself to be experimented with for a guy like Vince McMahon and the agents backstage. Is that a hot take? I mean, I think it's medium hot uh, because anything that involves the Ultimate Warrior is at least a medium hot take. But no, I, I, hearing you explain it, I think I, I agree that I think that the Ultimate Warrior was kind of even more so than Hulk Hogan, the person around whom they they figured out how to arrange the furniture. Yes. You know what I'm saying? That he was like the, the rug that tied the room together, to, mm-hmm. to paraphrase the movie, so to speak. And... Yeah, they really got into the business of figuring out how to arrange things around him, whether it was angles, whether it was, you know, opponents or opponents with managers who were great talkers, or whether it was guys who could take great bumps. And like this match, you can very clearly see like this match is all about showing that the ultimate warrior is like super strong and super powered up with the energy of the crowd. And when he's on a mission, just absolutely nothing can stop him because like Rude just has no answer for him like throughout most of the match and like he's like throwing rude over the top rope to the floor like over and over like and he picks him up at one point and he gives him like a, a bubble bomb almost like yeah Barry Dudley does but instead of falling to his own ass with him he just like full Nelson slams this dude onto his ass and it's like the meanest most devastating move that nobody would ever do like this is 
a match, almost in the way they were carefully putting together the Goldberg matches when he came back from his run two years ago. Where like this match is so carefully and lovingly put together yeah. to get exactly what they want out of Warrior. And literally, once again, my first note on this is you can see a lot of lips moving during this match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Both from Rude at various times and the referee. There's a lot of lips moving during this match. And I think, uh, like I was saying, with Hogan, you had this guy who was ready made and. You mentioned this. He was about five minutes away from being able to be pulled out of the oven. And then you had Savage, who they largely built up from nothing or not nothing, but not as a star coming in, a huge star coming in. And they were just like riding his coattails up. They built him up. But the thing with Savage is Savage was, and I don't use this term loosely, uh, a wrestling genius. So you really didn't need to like hold his hand through stuff. And I, I think that you have from those two, this synthesis of a warrior character where they have control over him, but he's the kind of charismatic star, not that Savage wasn't, but the kind of guy who could rely exclusively on his charisma. Cause every Savage match you see, he doesn't, at least in my experience, doesn't, unless he's hurt, do the Sabisco thing. He does powder and stuff like that, but he's also the type of guy that will jump off of the top rope and axe handle you onto the floor, from the, to the floor. Like, he is an incredible athlete, and it doesn't, at no point, not that Warrior isn't, like, a, an impressive physical specimen, but there's this real shift to a guy like, they basically took all of the ideas they had for Savage, I feels like, and put it in Warrior. And like you said, this is such a lovingly put together match. And it is, you cannot overstate how good Rick Root is at making Ultimate Warrior look like a super world champion. He, I mean, that, and again, we, we mentioned this, that, that was his job. That was literally, if you wrote on his tax return, it'd be Ultimate Warrior's like a butler or what i don't know ultimate warriors uh patsy i guess like he really was the person who helped build the ultimate warrior as a character who could be in main events because he showed to vince and to everybody no you this guy can really be carried to something really great and warrior has some of the best matches of the era, and he's never the best guy in the match. He's always, always, always the guy being led to a great match, but he fit the part so well that all of these matches, and this match in particular, is so much fun and so well-constructed, and there's so many great spots that you you get why the why people were so hot for Warrior by the time he got to the promised land. Oh yeah, Warrior towards the finish of this match is a German suplex off the second rope, uh, which I had completely forgotten. And like, I mean, you know, it's not the prettiest looking thing, but God, especially by the standard of of the time, it's a hell of a spot. And it's like, like you said, it's very much the like modern match formula where it builds, where at the beginning he's doing kind of normal wrestling stuff, like he's throwing, you know, him over the top rope. But at the by the end of it, he's actually doing like, he hits a really nasty pile driver and uh <laughs> this match also has that pile driver from from rude to ultimate warrior of of internet gif fame <laughs> whatever the fuck that thing was yeah and i believe well i guess for continental wrestling fans that's a golden bomb right that's a or a, of a all japan maybe a kawada driver or a gonzo bomb but yeah that's a i don't know if i don't know if maybe he I don't think anybody in the WWF had like done a power bomb at that point. So it's not like they're like going up for a power bomb, but I think it's a, 
it's miscommunication and it looks absolutely like devastating and great and very real and stuff. And then they do another pile driver that looks normal after it. But the, in the, in the later moments of this match, there's two pile drivers from rude and one from the ultimate warrior. And they're all just like awesome and, and great. Cause it, you know what I mean? It's not, it's, I don't know. It's not two guys doing a Canadian destroyer. It's like one dude who's like 225 and super shredded. And one dude who's close to three bills and big as a house doing them. You know what I mean? Warriors are, was a really, I don't but He was a really great physical, but he really was a action figure. They could make do shit. They wanted to do. And it really works for this era. I will say this though. Uh, my favorite part of the match. I love all that shit is when, Warrior goes outside with Rude and hits Rude with the title. And Tony Schiavone is just... And Ventura, it's Ventura and Tony Schiavone. And I think they're really great, especially in this match. Because Schiavone goes, well, I mean, it's on the outside. And Ventura fucking loses it. Oh, Ventura kills him about like, oh yeah, well, what? If I stabbed you out there, it would be okay because it's on the outside? (laughs) Yeah, tremendous. Like, I think that... Tony was, you used the word Patsy earlier. I think Tony was the best Patsy for Ventura ever, where he was yeah. not afraid to just look like a wimp next to Ventura. Like JR wouldn't famously, right? Like JR and, and, and Ventura didn't really work because, because he didn't want to indulge Jesse in the putting Jesse over part of it. But I don't think anybody was ever better at Shiv- than Shivani at getting bullied by Jesse. It was a great, great pairing. Yeah. He does a good job of, uh, cause they have the, uh, to compare it to a modern context, uh, they can be, or they could have been Corey Graves and Byron Saxon, where it's just like, why are you picking on Byron so much? I get it. And instead, it actually works because it's not that he hates Tony Schiavone. It's that Tony Schiavone said something fucking stupid and he called him out on it. And that's what made Ventura special because he's clearly such a brilliant, I mean, brilliant guy. He's so smart. And it really works for his character in a way that like Bobby Heenan is Bobby Heenan is like clever. It feels like Ventura is actually smart and is to explain is like taking his experience and extrapolating it out in a way that really works for his relationship with Tony Schiavone. Cause Tony Schiavone isn't pretending to be something he's not. He's an announcer who loves wrestling and loves the baby faces, but not loves the baby. He's not biased towards the baby faces, but he's not, afraid to like fudge the facts a little bit to, to like not letting facts get in the way of a good story about this guy and Ventura's best mode is fighting back against that so they just work brilliantly and I just love how quickly he goes after him without seeming like he's bullying him he's just like that is fucked up that you think that's okay he's almost too right at times that like he he's pointing out that you know in a world where People claim, like people like Tony Schiavone or Vince McMahon, the announcer, not the promoter, people like them claim that there are good guys and there are bad guys and categorize people like him as a bad guy. And he is always there to point out when the good guy isn't holding themselves to the proper standard. And that can be like really radioactive. Like I think you, once again, it's like if you see some of the stuff that happens later in WCW, like a decade after this with like, NW and O and, and some of that stuff that there's the like, yeah, of course the, the heels are smarter and more capable and the baby faces are dummies. And the only way the baby faces could stand up to the heels is by getting nasty and that compromises their core values. So how can we believe in them? It's, it's interesting to hear 
like when I listen to this now, that I'm a little worried about that starting to creep into the narrative. But at the same time, and me being like a nerdy meta narrative fan, I almost think that makes Jesse an even better heel. <laughs> but I'm like, no, 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 you're opening, you're opening the can. The worms are going to get out. What are you doing? You know, it, it's, a, it's a whole other level that went on there because I was like, oh, man, he is right. Like, Warrior shouldn't be beating Rude up with the belt totally unprovoked. But if Rude picks up the belt, swings it and misses warrior can pick the belt up and hit rude that's normal baby face wrestler psychology it's a little in eh, but there's no problem with it but but warrior specifically picks up the belt to hit rude and yeah it's it's almost him in a medicine's calling out the booking of the match he's like that's terrible fucking psychology and i think that works because he's not working himself into a shoot he's literally in the context of the match explaining you can't do that and it really really adds a layer to the match of like warrior being kind of a crazy out of control, not kind of an out of control monster who, if he were to turn evil would, everyone would be complaining about how he's the worst person ever. And Jesse kind of hints at that through the match, but without ever being like, he's really the, the real bad guy is ultimate warrior. They're like, he's like, how are you okay with him being the good guy? And I think it's an interesting story to tell, especially in this match, because it's so clear that one guy's the heel and one guy's the face that he actually plays with that in ways that you don't get to see a lot. And Jesse's the king of it. And this is one of his best, like one of his true masterpieces of a call for a match that it, it's a big match, but it's not WrestleMania, the main event of WrestleMania three. It's a good survivor series intercontinental title match that leads to bigger things. And a lot of that is Jesse's framing of it really propels it. And again, with his partnership with Shivani, he's really able to tell that story without making himself or the fact that warrior did that the entire story. It's just, it gives the, it gives uh, Rude, if something happened earlier in the match, uh, an excuse. It, like, it really helps to fill in the huge gaps in psychology that they wouldn't have been able to be filled otherwise if it was somebody who was less talented than Ventura. The match doesn't work nearly as well without Ventura. And Ventura does that without making himself the star of the match. And I think that's like, this match is great. It's definitely an essential viewing, especially for the history of Warrior and if you're looking at the, the timeline of main events. But it's also an essential viewing just to see why the partnership between Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura worked so well. Because Tony Schiavone is a pro's pro and he knows his role and Jesse is so good at playing his one note that it, it well, not that he's a one, but that, that one specific note so well that it, it really it really adds a lot to the match. Oh yeah, definitely. I think as we've gotten into the essential viewing format over the last however many months, I think one of the main ideas we keep coming back from, or keep coming back to rather, is that when you have a great match with great commentary and they actually fit together well, like that's when you're playing home run baseball or whatever. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's when you're really locked in and in the zone. Like you can't have a great match where the announcers are disinterested. Like that's what's so wrong with a lot of the Nitro era stuff when you go back and watch it. And that's that's one of the main differences between Raw and Nitro in that era of the Monday Night War is that like Jim Ross and, and Jerry the King Lawler are like engaged to a fault in whatever stupid crazy ass thing is in front of them, whatever shiny object has their attention for that second. Whereas like 
on the other channel, there was a lot of like talking about what might happen and processing what happened at the top of the show and predicting what was going to happen at the end of the show. So even though there was all this great work in the ring, like where are all those great matches from Nitro? Like there are a few that people can name off the top of their head, but anyway, I, I've diverged here, but yes, I think we've arrived again at one of our common themes that when there's the great announcing with the great match. That's when you have something that's actually memorable and not just like good and fun to watch. The announcing doesn't have to be great for it to be a great match, which I think we'll see in the next match, which is Razor Ramon versus Jeff Jarrett at the 95 Royal Rumble. But the announcing isn't disinterested, like you said. And it and McMahon's really trying to in this, because this is a uh, Jeff Jarrett versus, like I said, versus Razor Ramon. And it's McMahon and... Lawler? Yes, sorry, yeah, because Lawler's rooting yeah. for uh, Jarrett and, all the time. And it really works as them picking sides. Like, that's the kind of style that worked for McMahon and, and whoever else is kind of picking sides because McMahon has this weird thing, especially in the early to mid-90s, of clearly being more inside than he's making himself out to be, but without, and the perfect example is go watch the first in your house. He really like sells you on the WWF as a concept. And you see that he's selling you this entire match on Razor Ramon as this like never say die baby face who uh, has not, he doesn't even mention like he's changed his ways, but he really is trying to put him on a pedestal. And Jeff Jarrett keeps on like, pushing the pedestal slightly out of the way. Every time he tries to place him on there, he's like moving it. And like when he turns his back, he's like taking Razor off the pedestal. Jeff Jarrett is a, a we we definitely mentioned this last episode, is a fucking fantastic heel. And this match has some of the better psychology I could remember because the roadie, Jesse James, uh, eventually the road dog, is like a really fun character. The roadie is a really interesting gimmick for Jeff Jarrett. And also the way that he commits road dog commits to being the roadie is kind of great. Like he literally spends the match, like sitting on the apron, like putting his head on the apron, like waiting for stuff to happen. Like a roadie would like waiting for that moment. Or if you're stage crew and you're just running on stage, pulling shit off and putting shit on where it needs to be. It reminds me a lot of that. There's one point during this match where he literally gives Jeff Jarrett a bottle of water and is like, can you believe this guy? There's so many great psychology moments in this match that they can circumvent that thing we, we talked about earlier where Jeff Jarrett looks like he can actually keep up on some level with Razor Ramon, but the Razor Ramon's just a little bit better and he needs to play tricks with him in order to get him uh, to get over on him. Yeah, definitely. That's what I thought was makes this match stand out against any other ones that we've really talked about in depth so far is that the first like five minutes of this match, they just go hold for hold. Like it's pretty 50-50 back and forth, really fast paced action by the standards of the time. But like Jarrett and, and Hall or Jarrett and Razor like always have an answer for each other. Like there's a point where it's like, they do the top wrist lock back and forth and then they do a hammer lock exchange and then they like they go to the ground and they're like trying to work on each other's arms and stuff. Like it's it, it, the first few minutes of this match, they do a great job kind of establishing that this is a good competition between two great athletes. And so far in the kind of 
prior IC matches we've talked about, it's been all about like the heel wouldn't have a chance if it wasn't for cheating. Uh, friggin' Rude would never have gotten a move on Ultimate Warrior if not for Bobby's distraction, if not for knocking him off the top rope, and if not for the ref bump. Those were literally the only times Rude got offense. But like in this match, you have Jarrett, who's a good competitor, but like you said, he's got the manager. He's a pain in the ass, and he's super duper arrogant and stuff. And like they they do a great job of yes, he is a chicken shit heel and they eventually do like an awful chicken shit finish by which he wins the title. But before that, they, they actually give you that first part of the match. I don't know. I, I loved it so much. And like, it's, it's something that you, you didn't see before it and you don't even see enough now. Like we always complain about the 50, 50 match, but I thought the first five minutes of this match were so good in that, that segment of the match was 50, 50. And then it was like, okay, well to get to the next gear, Jarrett has to start doing heel stuff. Like Jarrett can get into third gear because he's a good wrestler, but you know, he, he can't beat Hall in fourth gear fair kind of thing. Like I thought that that, that subtle difference in the psychology, not the heel is terrible and can't do anything at all, but the heel is almost as good as the baby face, but not quite as good. Uh, and he's really overconfident and he plays the numbers game and this and that and that, like, I think that that's a much more, nuanced and interesting psychology than I think people give uh, Jeff Jarrett of this era credit for. Yeah, there's this idea that it both makes Razor look like a million bucks because the end spot essentially of this match is Rhodey clips Razor Ramon on the outside, they count Razor out, and then Jeff Jarrett calls out Razor and basically calls him a pussy. Let's finish this match one, two, three. And here, Double J's roadie 
was the person to put Razor out of the match. Let's go, He's trying to get Razor to get back into Let's the ring go, and continue the matchup. Match. He's gonna I do can't it. Believe it. Is he gonna? Razor Ramon apparently is gonna do just that. Yellow belly coward. Come on, Rip McMahon. Let's, let's see, McMahon. Let's see if you'll show everybody how tough he really yeah, is. Come on in here. We're going to finish this match. Referee, quit trying to talk him out of it. Well, now the official asking Razor Ramon. He's going to start it. Wow. I can't believe that. And w- when he says that, it you can see the ways in which Razor's definitely going to fucking lose this match, but also how they're putting both of them over because Jeff Jarrett's job is to get you fucking livid at him. And he also makes Razor look like a, a look like a future world champion because Razor valiantly fights and almost beats Jeff Jarrett despite wrestling on one leg. Like it, it makes him lose the title without making him look bad at all. He really gives of he doesn't Jeff Jarrett gets over but he doesn't do so at the expense of Razor Ramon it is a very well constructed match psychologically speaking they're close they're close they're close Razor's a little bit better Jeff Jarrett and them Jeff Jarrett and the roadie can kind of equal Razor but they need that last little bit and it it doesn't feel like a plan it feels like a thing it feels like a plan went wrong and then they improvised, meaning Road Dog and Rhodey and Jarrett, not the actual show. It really makes both guys look great, which is really, really hard to do without like magic. <laughs> Basically, like you can get one guy over and make another guy not lose any anything, but to get both guys over. At the, in the same way, in the same match is really hard. And this match in particular is probably the best example of it I can remember. Yeah, I, I think it's really, really excellent, especially post-startup. Like you said, the way they really post-restart, they, uh, they just establish who the characters are so clearly and like what kind of people they are when the chips are down on the table. And like I love that Scott Hall, like you said, on one leg, he still has the the hope spots of the, of the roll-ups and stuff. Like he gives him an inside cradle once or twice. And then uh, Jarrett does the Ric Flair sequence of the, the shin breaker. And then he drapes his foot on the ropes and jumps on it and stuff. And then when they get into the figure four, there's like two minutes between Jarrett applying to figure four and, and the ref calling for the bell. Like there's just all this agony of, of Hall trying to fight and trying to fight and trying to fight. And he, you know, goes down for a rest and the ref starts to count his shoulders and he has to pull them up and he goes down for a rest and the ref starts to count his shoulders. And then like, he's, he's trying to turn the figure four over one way. And then he tries to turn the figure four over the other way. And it actually looks like he's going to like the drama of the finish of this match is like main event WrestleMania Mm -hmm. quality drama. Like it is an incredibly well executed finish. It's like when people talk about Scott Hall being like, one of the smartest wrestlers ever in terms of psychology watch this match yeah and with Je- the two of them together it's this feud is probably the most underrated one of the era and this match is kind of the perfect example of why um a less underrated feud i don't want to spend too much time on this match yeah everyone knows how i feel about rob van dam you made that very clear last I lo- time I fucking hate Rob. I don't hate him as a person. I really hate him as a performer. And to have him against William Regal at WrestleMania 8, I think it's kind of 
this match is essential because you see what the world, the, the IC title had become at this point. And that's not to say this is a bad match. It's a very good match, but it's a very specific time of the match, the length of the match, the finish of the match. You, They beat the shit out of each other for the first whatever. And then the end spot is a multiple brass knucks spot that ends with Rob Van Dam kicking William Regal in the face with his own fist. Basically, like, he kicks his fist into his face and knocks him out, and that's the end spot. And when you look at it on this card, it's it's the first match at a WrestleMania, and it gets over, the crowd's hot, it's a great, great, it's WrestleMania 18, it's a fucking great crowd. But there's just, this match is not the this is a very good match it is the least impactful match i think we've ever covered on this show it it does nothing for either guy but it's fun to watch yeah i mean it's wrestlemania x8 18 say what you will about the like i said say what you will about the angles going in or the matches that actually wound up happening but like that's the height of the roster so it's kind of wild that like at that moment, these are the two guys you have. It's it's Regal, who is that kind of definitive kind of gatekeeper, upper mid-card type guy who, who, you know, that's kind of one of the IC champion types like we were talking about. And then you have Rob Van Dam, who's still relatively new in the company at the time, I guess, but definitely the more, you know, more uh, impactful, high-flying type wrestler. Like, it's a classic wrestling matchup. But yeah, it's like they they go on first, and like by the end of that card, like did anybody really remember that? I mean, they they pound the crap out of each other. They're kicking and elbowing each other in the face super hard. Like there's a Van Dam has like a nick next to his eye within the fucking first minute of the match, and Regal's bleeding from the mouth at one point because Van Dam kicks him right in the teeth. Like it's a physical, hard hitting, really well wrestled match. But I guess it's just crazy to see that, like I said, at the at the height of the roster this is what the IC title was doing. It's like, it's a totally good match, but it's also a little sad. Yeah, and I, I think that doesn't necessarily change, even though the matches are good, because, like, the next match we're going to talk about is Randy Orton versus Edge at Vengeance 2004, which is a match I love. I love this match. It's weird to see Randy Orton without the tattoos, right, Dave? Yeah, every time I see him sans sleeves, I do like a, a double tick. He he just looks wrong to me. <laughs> yeah, he looks like a, a big baby. Like a big white baby. Like a like a man child without the tattoos. You can see the ways in which he has physically matured, obviously in the last fifteen years, but also the ways in which his character has matured because this match is very... Also the way advances in performance enhancing drugs have matured. Continue. Yeah, great job. They look HGH for everybody, man. This is a quintessential heel babyface match. Orton's character at this point is a chicken shit heel who's also the most talented guy on the roster and it totally fucking works. This is a point in wrestling history that's like right in the middle of this man I wasn't watching. <laughs> like this is... You know, this, this is between that, that dead period between 2002 and 2006 or seven for me. So I'm always intrigued to go back and, and watch this stuff. And like, I always say that Edge was a main eventer who I never really got it with. Like, I always thought that he just didn't work there and I just never got excited when he was in main events. But maybe if I'd watched more of this era, I would have gotten it more because they were definitely doing a great job in this match. Like, Orton telling the old school heel story of just 
frigging grinding on this guy and like endless chin locks on the mat and stuff and just setting up each one of his sequences and stuff. It was, it was a really, it struck me as a really old school match, which I thought really worked because usually I think there's a lack of old school psychology <laughs> in edges matches, which is one of the things I kind of find fault in them for. Yeah. This match, when I, when, when I, it's on the DVD, this is one of the matches that like really made me perk up and be like, God damn. Like Randy Orton is legit. Randy Orton, we talk about because he didn't, I mean, he did live up to his potential. He's a 14 time world champion. He's one of the great stars of his era. You can understand why people at this thought point thought he was going to be unequivocally the greatest wrestler of all time. And John Cena, like John Cena is great, right? But that Orton was, you get why they put all of the horses men behind Orton at this point, he is on a neck. And there are a couple of drop kicks in this match where you're just like, oh my God, like, how are you this good and that big? Because him and Edge are fucking enormous people and they really get after it. You can tell that they are two guys who grew up watching wrestling and wanted to try shit against guys their size, but never could find someone. So this match really has an experimental feel that's also really cool. It's old school, but there are spots in this in the same way there are in the Warrior Rude match that really kind of expand what you think about these performers in a way that you're not expecting. This match, like you said, for you, really opened your eyes for Edge. For me, it was Orton of just like, oh my God, he's... He's a he's clearly a generational talent. And this match is like a a match that isn't like one of the greatest of his career necessarily, though I really love it, but it's a really important watershed moment, a match you can point to and say, no, this version of Randy Orton is special and he's gonna continue to get better. Yeah, and I think that this is a rare glimpse. I mean, you know, last episode I was talking about this as as being kind of a lost period in in WWE history in terms of, you know, like what really happened, who got over, how did the business evolve during that time? Like there, there's, there's a lack of evolution in the style. There's like a stagnating in the style, but this was a match to me that really stood out is like, okay, this feels paced and organized and, and put into action in a way that feels like post attitude era. Like this seems like the missing step between the main events we saw in the Attitude Era and the main events we started to get in like 2009, 2010, where it's the suddenly everybody's a great worker era. You know what I mean? Like, but this actually felt like kind of that missing link. Yeah, it really helps to, it is a Rosetta Stone for the era of, oh my God, I get why these two guys are two of the five most accomplished people in the history of the company and why the crowd was, because the crowd is super super fucking hot for the ending which is perfectly set up orton takes a uh, halfway through the match i think takes off the turnbuckle and they keep teasing spots teasing spots at one point edge gets his face hit into it but kicks out and then they finish the match after teasing back and forth rkos and spears they have orton try to whip edge into the corner to kind of finish him off so he can get him stunned so he can get the rko like in a 2k game and Edge reverses it, and Orton just, like, hits the fucking turnbuckle square, and he stumbles out. And they don't do this big run-up. It's just he stumbles out one-step, two-step spear, and it's the crowd pops. 
huge for it because Orton had been trying, he had left the ring twice to take his ball and go home. And both times it's just like, fuck this guy. You can like, not that you can beat this guy, but like, really look at you. There's no reason for you to not try to beat this guy. And he comes back in and he really puts in a valiant effort and he really does a great job of getting close to beating edge but he just this is another match where like the baby face is just a little bit better but they do it this is another evolution where it's the heel is hoisted by his own petard and and that's such a good that's something you see it's almost old school and i don't think it's a coincidence because these guys grew up watching a much older version of wrestling than like than i think was be that than the attitude era necessarily they didn't grow up in the attitude era where it's just like fucking uh, titties again i said this last last episode like that that's what the attitude error is about is like objectification of women and blood and which we'll get to in a minute and really dangerous really dangerous looking sloppy power bombs there's a lot of yeah it's true and i'm not saying there's no value in any of the matches from the attitude era there's a lot of great stone cold and undertaker and kane stuff but there's this lost art of it's a lost art of the mid-range jumper, basically. And this is like a – this match feels like – okay, so you have your blockbusters, right? And you have your indie stuff. This is one of those $40 million to make family dramas that doesn't get made by anybody other than Netflix anymore. That's what this type of match felt like. It's like, oh, shit. This is like a movie that everyone can enjoy. Smart Mark, Mark, like old school wrestling fan, new school wrestling fan. This has – a lot for everybody and all of it fits together in a way that makes it a kind of a, like I said, a watershed match for me in terms of my understanding of an entire era of wrestling. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Like I said, this is the time where I was mostly bowed out, but when, and I, and every time I've gone back subsequently and tried to backfill, you know, I've watched, um, I, I've watched just about everything, at least on SmackDown from like 2002 and 2003. And I, I, I continue, I continue to backfill and I continue to be less than impressed. But like this match actively got me excited to try to seek out more stuff from that time to see what the kind of best and brightest were doing while the rest of the field was stagnating. Yeah. And and while this is kind of like a, a mixed ma- a mixed match in terms of like all the stuff that it has that works. The match that we're going to talk about next is uh, Ric Flair versus Triple H at Taboo Tuesday in 2005. It's That's an old school like NWA cage match. And I think it works not just as well because there's not as much stuff that comes out of it. It doesn't, it's not some sort of like uh, clarifying match, but this match does a great job of making the title makes sense on a guy like Ric Flair. If nothing else, that like he it clear that this match and the title, whether or not it would continue, meant something for him. He was really going to kill himself during this match. And this match is fucking brutal. <laughs> yeah, this one is this one I remember the first time I saw this match, I remember I literally found it hard to watch. Uh at, at a couple of at the point where they're both bleeding. Uh, the, the, this one of all the wrestling matches, I don't know why, but there are some points in this match where the the ordeal, especially for Flair, feels almost too real. Because, I mean, that's Ric Flair, right? Is it the, it, Everything was a fucking shoot to him. You know what I mean? Like, he, he really believed in that. God damn it, son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But no, it's like the ordeal that he goes through in this match feels 
so real. Like this match reminds me of the Mickey Rourke wrestler movie to a degree where it's this dude who just seems like he's addicted to being a main event wrestler and he's slicing himself to ribbons and he just looks like one big red piece of bacon but he's like still going out there for the crowd and he's still just beating the tar out of himself and like that comes across so strong in this match i think in some ways like obviously the Shawn michaels retirement match is the last great rick flair match but i would say that that match excluded this feels to me like the last great kind of high spot in his not high spot in the not high spot in the wrestling term but literally zenith we can say uh since you used nader earlier uh so the, the, this is like the last zenith this is the last peak for for him to me this is him having something that feels like a true old school super gritty super real dusty and rick you know crockett type match but at the same time there's this whole other narrative like i said of like you can just see that he's that he's out there really suffering like really suffering more than he's selling maybe and there's something really emotionally resonant about that part of the match too and i think because you if you understand the history between these two and the relationship between these two you can tell that triple h also loves being in this match he really makes rick flair look like like rick flair he really the second half of this match when he my wife bless her heart who's a nurse mind you asked like oh did they cut themselves and there's a point where triple h gets thrown into the the cage and stumbles and you can literally see him like wipe quote unquote wiping his brow and then he drops to the ground and they cut to him in the corner and he's just bleeding a straight line down from his forehead <laughs> like literally you can see where he cut the razor it's what it's one of the it's not like uh the jbl eddie guerrero match in terms of blood but fuck, there is a lot of blood in this match. Like, holy shit. And blood is something that I don't think we're really used to. Like, it jarred me, like you said, for you too. And for the announcers, it's a really, they're uncomfortable for the first half of the match, which really adds to the emotional resonance, like you said. But blood, how do you feel about blood? Because I understand all of the medical reasons, all of that stuff, why they don't use it. I still kind of miss it. Does that make me a bad person? Oh, it probably does, but I'm probably a, a way worse person. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love the blood. I think that you should, uh, that sounds awful, right? But I do. I love the blood. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it shouldn't be used just, just to make a match quote unquote better because like, that's just one of the, like, I don't know, that's old time carny shortcut stuff. Like, I don't know, you know, there's, there's matches out there. There's like, go watch the first Starcade where every match on the card has color. Like, you know, it, 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 there's clearly diminishing returns uh, in addition to all the health concerns that you came up with, uh, or correctly, but uh, but no, I, I think that it's definitely it's the exclamation point. Like it's like when you're writing, it's like you never yes. use the exclamation point. You know, maybe you goof around and do it when you're just chatting with your friends, texting or whatever. But in your real writing, you almost never use the exclamation point. Then when there's a line in your novel where someone says, fuck you, and there's an exclamation point after it rather than a period, like that is a big spot in the book. You know what I'm saying? Like, I yes. think that, or like I, 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 like there's the, in the lead up to WrestleMania three, they did the battle, the big battle Royal in England. That's on, um, they did a videotape. They did one of the Coliseums of it. And like uh, Lanny Poffo gets color 
to put over Andre heading into WrestleMania three and stuff. And like, it's, it's really poignant and really, really good. So I, I don't think you should be bleeding all the time. And I don't think we should be acting like blood makes the match better or blood gets the angle over better. But I think that in the right moment for the right match, for the right angle, for the right characters, it, it's one of the great tricks, quote unquote, illusions, tricks are what horse do for money. Um, <laughs> one of the great illusions in wrestling, in the stage magic that is wrestling, the blood still remains, even though we mostly know where they get the blood now, how it, the mechanics of it, the act of getting the blood, especially in a well-produced way where you don't see it and where it looks natural, like that still can bring a match or an angle to the next level. I, I love the blood, love the blood, love the blood, but everybody should be getting tested and everybody's health should be being respected and, and you shouldn't burn things out. Yeah, I would be fine with them bringing it back once a year, twice a year. Like, you can have a Hell in a Cell match where somebody blades, or you can have a WrestleMania match where somebody blades. I don't need to see it all the time. The The Attitude Era, I mean, even before that Starcade, but the Attitude Era completely burned out that shit. It was just every, it was everybody was getting color, and it doesn't, it doesn't keep its they literally had a fucking first blood match which was good but it's like that leads to places you don't want to go like people getting dumped with red stuff in wc like that's because where do you fucking stop do you just chop people's heads off it this match works as this disgusting gory literal blood feud you couldn't have done this in the randy orton edge match it would have looked like shit rick flair and rick flair visually and triple h visually are great bleeders so it that all aesthetically it really works for the match in a way that any of these other matches that we've talked about so far it wouldn't have worked it would not have worked for anything other than maybe the end spot of the regal van damme match it really is a special thing and they use it very very well but it comes in this era where everyone's fucking blading it's towards the tail end of just like everyone just getting so much color that it kind of bleeds out the the like effect but triple h as the lemmy looking motherfucker and rick flair as rick flair with the platinum blonde hair that is a bright red really visually this is an incredible match from beginning to end it's a well-constructed match if rick flair looks great triple h looks like a piece of shit it's it's one of the better matches of both of their careers at the era it happened to so like late period Ric Flair and like middle period Triple H. It's like one of the highlights of this era for both of them in their respective careers. And it's definitely a match you should go out of your way to watch. But be aware there is like a crazy amount of blood for it. Also a lot of dick grabs. Yeah, there is a full on like dick claw spot extended because Ric Flair is pretty blown up when it went out and when it happened. Yeah, extended particular claw. <laughs> but I am like, tired. <laughs> uh, and the last match we're going to get to has no blood. Um, no blood in my heart either because fuck Dolph Ziggler. But The Miz is the best Intercontinental Champion of the last 15 years. Basically since... God, since... He's one of the best ever. And this match is is one of the like reasons why he just makes Dolph Ziggler look like a thousand a thousand times better than he has any right being I hate Dolph Ziggler almost as much as I hate Rob Van Dam 
And this match makes you not hate Dolph Ziggler because it's a career versus title match. And it gives you a real significance that something that we talked about had been lost at the time. The Miz almost single-handedly made the IC belt matter. And this match is kind of the culmination of that idea. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I, I think that alluding, pointing back to something we talked about in the first part, it's like the Miz really brought the IC title back to his root by or its roots by like really being like the honky tonk man relative to his era like in the era where everybody's the great worker like as exemplified in quotation marks you know what i mean as exemplified by Dolph ziggler like here's the guy who you know it does not work a super athletic style but he is very bombastic and he still finds ways to make people care about his matches much more than they care about the matches that actually have the athleticism in them. So I thought that this was just a, a great tempering force for Ziggler because it's like Ziggler couldn't do uh, a lot of the super athletic stuff that's that's kind of in his worst impulses because it's like, no, The Miz isn't going to give you any moves that are going to cause you to take a bump like that. He doesn't hit you that hard kind of thing. Like he, and this I, is like pre yes kicks, if I remember correctly. Like, or he had uh, the it kicks. Like he ha- or he may have started using them, but he's not as impactful a performer as he is even now. Well, I guess this is almost two two and a half three years later. He this is the Miz. Why the Miz is a hall was be a Hall of Famer even if he didn't have this most recent really main event run over the last like year and a half where he's really really establish himself as a stalwart for the era this match is just like oh this is the match this is the time where you start to realize that the Miz isn't just here to stay but he's going to be looking back one of the most significant performers of this generation and watching this match and understanding his origin and all that shit it's kind of mind-blowing to think about but the Miz He's, he's another guy like Scott Hall. Right place, right time, knows how to make stuff look good without making himself look like he's 100 times better than the guy. He does such a good job of playing his role, both as IC Championship and as this quasi, a total chicken shit heel who's way tougher than even he realizes. Yeah, I mean, he was famously in the main event of WrestleMania 27 in 2011. I mean, this would be like five years after that. And I I just remember at the time that, like, that was one of the most polarizing choices ever, you know, like, what's The Miz doing in the WrestleMania main event? Or, like, oh, no, he's perfect, and they're making the next generation, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that, like, when you watch this match, you see in Miz what you used to see in, like, Jeff Jarrett or Scott Hall, where, oh, here's a guy who's visited the main event, and he knows what the style is in the main event, and he knows, you know, how the fans invest in the main event and how to get them there. So it's like, he's one of, he's almost kind of bringing that main event mentality back down the card. Like I said, like Jeff Jarrett in the nineties is like one of the greatest examples of this to me, you know, that he could dip his toe in the main event, but he, it was never, it was never uh, diminishing him to put him back in the main event because sort of he helped raise those people back up by, by bringing the knowledge back. Like he was the, he was the main eventer who had poked his head outside Plato's cave. You know what I mean? Or the, the mid carter who had poked his nose outside of Plato's cave. And I think you can really see that in, in the Miz here, that it's like this idea that someone can be a really difference making like quote unquote ring general without necessarily being the traditional great 
worker because like, I don't know. It's like, if you watch, watch any of the big multi-man matches on the pay-per-views between 2014 and, and 2017, if you want to see Dolph Ziggler call a match and like, there's a lot of really, really great action and satisfying moments. But with Miz here, like I said, I you're just marrying that, that natural ability that Ziggler has with Miz's kind of toned down physical style and better understanding of the main event psychology. It's just like, like you were saying earlier that like there really wasn't a conceivably a better opponent for warrior than rude. It's like, I don't really think conceivably there's a better opponent at or wasn't at this time for Ziggler than Miz. Like Miz was the guy with the complimentary skill set that he needed. And he's such a great heel on the mic. Like him and Maurice in particular, were so transcendently great at getting heat that this match, both because Diggler, Diggler, Ziggler wants to beat Miz and because the Miz has made the IC title match work, uh, the IC title means so much. That's why the stipulation works. You can see how the Miz could drive Dolph Ziggler to that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, you know, Dolph Ziggler has the thing where he's, you know, his his character, it's like, He's here to show the world, um, and he's like a show-off. But, I mean, he's been on TV for 10 years, and I have no fucking idea what his character is. Yeah. Um, and, but I think that that's the magic of a really great heel, and that's why the business used to be built around really great heels is because it doesn't matter who the really great heels opponent is, really. You know, And, and I don't mean to diminish Ziggler that badly, but when you have a great heel, it doesn't really matter who the great heels opponent is. Yeah. Um, yeah, this match is definitely worth it to watch, to, to seek out for the, Ziggler's good. Ziggler does Ziggler stuff. It's a Ziggler match. He, the crowd pops big for the ending. All of the stuff you're supposed to do. The match really works, but the Miz, this is a, a another, like a Rosetta Stone match for the Miz where you're like, oh, okay, I get it. I get you as one of the quintessential performers of this generation and why you now work as a babyface because you bring so much pathos on either side of the match to everything you do because you're living this in a way that a lot of people don't like i was lucky enough to be at the evolution pay-per-view working the red carpet with uh, news 12 because our friend of the show andy works for news 12 and they had me help with stuff and seeing the miz with his daughter and his wife you totally get why he is one of the most important people in the company outside of the ring and that he really brings that to everything he does. And this match, really, he gets over so much shit just by virtue of trying really fucking hard at his job and being good at it. It's I love The Miz. This match is a really great Miz match. It's an okay Dolph Ziggler match, which is all Dolph Ziggler matches. But yeah, I, I love this match because I love The Miz. And I think that... Out of all of these, this is the least impactful, but it's probably the most interesting to look at from the perspective of uh, this or the Orton edge match of like, oh, that's how we got here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it, when you have a title that's 40 years old, you know, and you're, you're trying to pull together an essential viewing <laughs> that's going to be, you know, an hour, give or take long. Like, obviously, there's a lot of gaps in, in what we've covered, but I think what we did... A, a nice job of in this episode, if I can, if I can pat us on the back, as I think we balanced like the historically important matches with just those like temperature taking check ins of like, so what was the deal with the Intercontinental Title at this moment? And I'm glad we did talk about this match because I mean, 
you know, if we stopped at 2005, even though like in my heart of hearts, that was kind of the last match I really, really was thinking about. I don't think that that would be fair to the title. I think you do need to talk about the kind of second brand extension, the second roster split era uh, of the intercontinental title, because I think there has been a lot of attempts to do something with it. <laughs> like, I, you know, I don't really know. It's, it's so hard to say where we are right now, like with the title on Bobby Lashley and stuff, like it's so hard to, to understand what the title is and what the title means. But, but looking back at the last two episodes, I guess maybe in another 40 years, we'll, we'll know better. Yeah. Uh, so now that we've solved again, two days in a row, the mystery of the intercontinental championship, do you have any things to plug this week, Dave? Oh, well, as always, I'm going to plug myself, which is hotter than it sounds, believe it or not. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. Uh, check out the Wrestling Estate for the roundtables I participate in. A lot of really good content getting dropped there as we head towards WrestleMania. Also, as we head towards WrestleMania, the How Wrestling Explains the World uh, YouTube channel continues to grow. We keep posting uh, some really good best of clips from the first season. So make sure you're subscribed to that channel and make sure you're, you know, helping share those video clips forward to your friends and colleagues who also might like the show. While you're subscribing to that YouTube channel, you could also do me a super duper solid and uh, rate and review the show on iTunes so that we can get up to that point, like I said, where they can aggregate us a rating and then we get infinitely easier for new listeners to discover. So if even just five people hearing my voice could do that between now and our, our next episode, it would be a, a really, really big thing. So please do rate and review. And you can check me out at the next of the T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out at how wrestling explains.podbean.com. And in addition to your rate and reviewing and subscribing to us on iTunes, you can do so on Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google play store. Um, I, if we don't have time for pocket cast news. I have to go pick up Kate, but uh, good episode today, Dave. Yeah. And that means out to the floor, hit him with the belt. This should be a disqualification. That's a disqualification. Where the hell is the referee? That's outside of the ring, Jesse. So what? As much it can just be a count out here. What are you going to tell me, Shivani? You can shoot somebody outside the ring as long as it's outside the ring? Well, no, that... You know, you're even dumber than Monsoon. I thought Gorilla was the stupidest guy alive. Right to the head. There is no question that fans are on their feet here. This is ridiculous that Joey Morella is allowing this to take place in an Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship. Bobby the Brain Heenan griping at ringside. That's not going to happen. Here he goes again. Certainly outside the ring. The Warriors don't know how to wrestle inside the ring. Well, now that still remains to be seen in this match. Because, Jesse, as you know, regardless of what happens outside for the Warrior to win this title, he's got to pin him inside. That's right. You know what? If I was ravishing Rick Rude with the way the Warriors do it, look at this. Now he throws him back in the ring. Now he'll probably pitch him out again. If I was Rude, I'd stay outside and take the count out. Misinformed, must be I for you to bite your tongue, take your 